Welcome to Meanwhile at the Museum, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of Cincinnati Museum Center with the people who make it run and the stories that you may not hear or see on the museum floor. Today I am joined, this is new for us because we have multiple people in the Beat Laboratory today. We have the Nunchuck and Canuckin, Dr. Brenda Hunda, and the Pride of Philly, Stacey Kudish, here with us. <laughs> Hello, welcome. Hi, thanks. thanks great for to having us. Great to be here. Brenda, I've never used that nickname for you ever. No, you have not. So it's brand new. I really like it. Do you? Yes, because okay. it, it it combines two things I like about myself, being Canadian and doing martial arts. <laughs> I mean, if you could add paleontologist in there somewhere and then add um, like poutine in there somewhere, that, that's a challenge. Then we could round it out. And that would be Brenda in a nutshell. Have you found good poutine in the States? No. No. Well, see, so there's there's difference between like good poutine and like authentic. So authentic Canadian poutine comes out of a hole behind a gas station. And as all the best food does. As all the best food does, right? It really is like you go to the gas station and there's like a small cart next to some guys making poutine. Here you get like, you know, braised beef tip poutine and all the fancy stuff. It's delicious, but it's not like the heart stopping artery clogging version that i'm familiar with do you have a personal poutine recipe or do you have a family poutine recipe i don't but whenever i would go visit my dad in ontario we had a favorite poutine place so that's that was kind of like the the mainstay and of course you have to put ketchup on it because canadians do you really yes canadians put ketchup on everything including their poutine wow yeah so okay. there you go stacy how do you feel about poutine stacy's a vegetarian <laughs> There, well, there's that. Do so I do not have a position on poutine. It's, it's, there's plenty that I uh, modify and I love food. So there's plenty that I modify to eat as a vegetarian. Poutine's a pretty hard one to transition over. The gravy, I feel like there may be a challenge there. What, so there, there is vegetarian Cincinnati style chili. Have you have you had that? I I have an amazing recipe and I make it regularly. It's in our normal rotation at home now. Oh, really? For real? Oh, that's amazing. I'll share the recipe if you want. So, what does a senior director of exhibit development do? So my role is um, we have a strategic plan that informs all of our upcoming exhibits. We know what we're putting in all of our available galleries, and. <clears throat> I'm given those concepts, and then we put together a diverse team of individuals across the organization. We identify partners in the community. We pull them together and uh, develop a concept. In this case, we have a lot of Ordovician fossils. What are we going to do with them? And we take it from just a little germ of an idea into a complete immersive experience. And what that involves is convening lots of meetings, um, thinking carefully and critically about the assets that are available. Sometimes that is uh, images and things that we get from other sources, um, but we are fortunate to have amazing collections that we rely on. I try and be a really big set of ears and listen and absorb as many perspectives as possible. And then maybe my favorite part is to really synthesize um, everything that I'm hearing and all of the possibilities that we have into physical experiences, text on labels, uh, how we design, what the look and feel should feel like, um, 
what digital interactives are helping tell the story and knitting that all together into, you know, taking it from a little seedling and growing it into a full garden of a range of possibilities. She's a plant person too. That's a good metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. And you're here with Dr. Brenda Honda, who is our curator of invertebrate paleontology. Yeah. Because we are specifically talking about ancient worlds hiding in plain sight, which is our opportunity to showcase our Ordovician fossils, which are all invertebrates, right? So my middle school science Mm -hmm. reminds me that invertebrate means no backbone. Does that mean no bones at all? True, right? Bones as we know them, our bones are inside as an internal skeleton, and all the invertebrates have pretty much external skeletons. So I like to think of it as anything that, if you stepped on it, would go squish or crunch. Is pretty much probably going to be an invertebrate. Since I'm all over the place, you mentioned your love of martial arts. Yeah. Do you have more black belts or academic degrees? More academic degrees, but only by one. Okay, that's impressive. And she's working <laughs> on it. And I'm working on it. <laughs> how, so how many black belts do you have? I almost have two. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you ever get in the dojo and say, I'm about to make you an invertebrate and do a compound <laughs> fracture on an arm? I'm not allowed to do oh. that, <laughs> but but I do have thoughts and wishes about such things. It'd be cool though, right? Right. That'd be an yeah. awesome finishing move. Like that's a that's a line. Oh yeah, and we always say finish it when we do it, just like the video game. Do you remember the video game from a oh, long yeah. time ago? Mortal yeah. Kombat, so sure. we have a lot of finishing moves that we do on people that we pretend to do, like get close to, but can't actually do it. Yeah. She'll cite you though, and when when yeah. the time comes to use that line, she'll think, oh. You can thank Cody. Hunter I'll give you some that. finishing moves. Ooh, when we when we open the gallery instead of doing a ribbon cutting, can you flip me through it? <laughs> <laughs> I actually can. I'm working on my shoulder throws tonight. Oh. I can throw you right on over. I uh, volunteers trivia. But do you do you feel like you can land well? That's the question. Absolutely. Because I can not. throw you. Yeah, you got to land properly. Is that part of it? Is yes, we learn to throw. Learn? Yeah, and you learn to land. Yeah. Is learning to land a courtesy for the other person or is that part of that's part of your that's part of your self-defense okay if i'm throwing you as the attacker your self-defense is to land properly so you can get back up and then defend yourself that's amazing okay all right this will not be the martial arts podcast but that will be coming down the road uh ancient worlds hiding in plain sight this is a dream exhibit for you right how long has this particular exhibit been in the works well so I've been at the museum for almost 20 years, and the very first meeting I had when I got here was, how do we make this exhibit happen? So for me, it's been a 20-year-long dream, and I think if you ask other people in the museum who've been here longer than I have, it certainly has been since we moved into Union Terminal that we've wanted this Ordovician Gallery. Why is this one such a big deal? Why has this been on the radar Um, on the list for people for so long? You know, we in Cincinnati, in terms of our paleontology and geology, are world famous. We are extra special. Being able to go out and collect fossils in the creek and sort of in your building stone around your house is not normal. That's not what people do normally around the world. The fact that you have to kick fossils here to get to other fossils is really a, a, a privilege that we have from our local geology. So so the Museum Center and our collections, where you know, we do that the best. Cincinnati does Ordovician geology in North America the best. I like to think of it as kind of like our skyline and our Bengals, except we are the best at Ordovician geology. And so for us, nobody can do it better than we can, right? And so this is something that lays the foundation of our city. 
it lays the foundation of the location of a lot of our buildings in Cincinnati. Um, it's the foundation of a lot of natural history science that was done here in the late 1800s, early 1900s. We just have the legacy and we have the reputation. So it's it's part of who we are and the fabric of our city. And so it needs to be important and it needs to be done. Why is the order vision period so prominent here? Because if you think of time, you think of land, it's the newest is on top, the oldest is on bottom, right? Stacking down. So Correct. how is it that you see the cut in the hill or you're walking through this creek bed, why are you not tripping over a dinosaur bone to get to a, a trilobite? Why are these at the surface, essentially? So the answer to it is essentially plate tectonics, which I think is the answer to everything, pretty much. Um, People talk about mercury and retrograde a lot and things like yeah. that, but we don't talk enough about what's happening with the Eurasian plate, with the... Pacific plate, is that another one? I yes. shouldn't have swung so broadly to know tectonic <laughs> plates, and I could only name one. Well, we think about plate tectonics only when we have natural disasters. I mean, we've had some really big earthquakes lately, and that puts that you know puts it in people's consciousness. But plate tectonics has been going on since we've had a crust on Earth over 4 billion years. And for us, in this region, having a collision about 250 million years ago on the eastern seaboard of the United States with what is present-day Morocco to form the supercontinent Pangaea was really what caused the interior of our crust to buckle. And as a result, we got the Cincinnati Arch. And so this region of the country actually became kind of like an arch or a dome. And then 250 million years of sort of eroding the top of that arch off, kind of like taking the top of a muffin off, um, really exposed the oldest rocks at the bottom to the surface. And so for us, having the ancient 450 million rocks at the surface is a function of, you know, continents colliding and hundreds of millions of years of erosion. That's amazing. So this exhibit, it's been in the works for quite a while. To build a new exhibit, it has to have some place to go. And so typically in a museum, that means something else is being taken out or you're building on an entire section to accommodate that. For us, we had the restoration of the building, which required us from 2016 to 2018 to remove almost every exhibit out of the Museum of Natural History and Science and the Cincinnati History Museum, creating this opportunity for us to reimagine what those look like. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of, this was the Ordovician Gallery's moment. This was, boom, it's happening, it's on the list. So once it's on the list, once we decide, hey, we're, we're bringing this gallery to reality, what happens first? So uh, e even before what happens first in terms of imagining the gallery, um, during that period of restoration, we did a lot of work with the community to set priorities, understand what folks were looking to see in the museum, and to establish a master plan. And so we've known since we've come back in the building in 2018 that this particular zone would be the Ordovician Hall. We just have, have been working through all of our master plan ideas and we're getting there now. We're, we're moving through our priorities. And so in late 2019, we first convened about uh, Ancient Worlds Hiding in Plain Sight. It didn't have that name yet. We no. keep um, using the shorthand of Ordovician, but in fact, the, the gallery carries us all the way through the Carboniferous period. So we, we cover a broader scope of time. Um, which is why we needed a, a broader name. Um, so we started working late 2019 together and um, we convened a group that met weekly and we started imagining the design possibilities. 
We committed to using a set of principles that would engage girls in science um, as a design standard that we wanted to use. We started looking at the outstanding fossils that were available, and Brenda started making them available to us so we could study them together. Keeping in mind that this was all starting while COVID. Well, so this is 2019, and then March 2020, we transitioned the whole thing virtual to virtual and uh now we're we're all so used to working um with video chat it's it is a normal standard um but it was it was a new process and we didn't have access to our facility so brenda wasn't able to get into geyer to actually work with the fossils that were available so she was working from records and memory real quick you mentioned geyer the, Our research facility, in and, and, and collections also, facility. yeah the collections facility. So this is our this is the Indiana Jones warehouse where yes, <laughs> it people might be disappointed to walk in and not see just crates stacked to the ceiling, but you go into any of the collections and there's just case after case after case after case. So many cases that they're accordion together and you have to separate them out one at a time because there's so many materials in there. How Brenda, how many objects are in your, or specimens are in your collection? So we have a good estimate of at least a million. Um, and that is one of many collections that we have. So when we say there probably is about 8 million objects in that building, both in science and history, that's probably a pretty conservative estimate. Wow. Yeah. And we'll be putting more than 400 of the yes. best specimens on display in ancient worlds hiding in plain sight. How do you pick? How, how do you pick what goes in there? Is it based on, um, oh, these these look really great, these are in really great condition, or these are in okay condition, but such a critical part of this prehistoric story? Yeah, I think you've hit on a, an important word there called the story. So when Stacy and I get together and talk about sort of what we want to have in the gallery, we start off by crafting the stories that we want to tell. And so the specimens aren't the first line, I think, um, in developing an exhibit. For me, it's thinking about what are the stories I want to tell? And once we have the stories kind of hammered out and outlined and sort of know generally where we're going, um, then I select the specimens that help best support that story. Now, sometimes those specimens might be exceptional and beautiful, and we all want to see those. Um, but sometimes a specimen might be partial or directly from the field or not maybe the best preservation, but it has a part of it that is really important to to be able to tell that story effectively. Um, and so we use all specimens, no matter what their condition. Sometimes we get specimens prepared if it turns out that we find something that we really want to use and it needs a little bit of work. Um, but they all have to support the story. Who's creating that story? Who's writing that narrative? Because that's, I mean, I was a history major, so I would say, here's the point I want to make. And I would pull quotes from, you know, people in history to support that. Mm -hmm. So you're crafting that narrative and then... The specimens are those quotes. Those are the proof points that say, see, this proves exactly what I'm talking about. Who's crafting that narrative? What's that process like? Writing a paper is a good analogy if you're doing it as a group project. And so uh, we had a whole core team of people and Brenda and I worked very closely together and with them. Obviously, as you mentioned, Brenda's got specialty degrees in this field. And so in terms of learning the narrative of what potential stories there are to tell. So for example, 
there's a whole range of organisms that we don't know very much about because CMC has the only example of this thing and science hasn't been able to answer questions about it yet. And so we wanted to build that into the narrative. Um, there's also a recurring theme of mass casualty and what leads up to that and what happens afterward and how do communities bounce back. And so that was a thread that we identified was going to be important as we were telling the story. And so we started piecing the big elements together, um, making our arguments. And we do that in a conceptual phase where we're really using broad brushes. Here's the space we have to work with. We want to dedicate roughly this amount of space to this story. And it's also very important to include this, but it doesn't need as much space. And we also start thinking about design at that point. And then we move into a phase of schematic design where we get more specific. And as a group, we really work to be able to have a shared understanding of what it is that we want to do. So we, we can very clearly say, these are the kinds of fossils that are going here. This is the story we want to tell. And then we moved into detailed design where we <laughs> come up with very specific object lists that we don't want to have changes we're installing. We came up with um, very, that's when we actually write the text that goes on all of the panels. We define what we want to be in the digital interactives. This is a multi-year process. Yeah. So when did when did this process start? And you mentioned this has been on the list since you started, but truly, this gallery itself. When? How many years are we talking? We had the good fortune of receiving a grant to support our development of this gallery, and that uh, became available for us to use in late 2019, yeah. I believe. So we started then, and we continued working through pandemic closure and um, came back together, got Brenda back into the lab. She was able to uh, actually hold the specimens and fact check that things were as she had had been planning. So we, we started uh, work in late 2019. And then by spring of 2021, we had a full design package of what we wanted to realize. Uh, we then, as an institution, began a fundraising effort uh, to be able to realize the build out of the gallery. And uh, we were, again, fortunate to get a grant and also a lot of community support to make this gallery possible. Mm -hmm. And so we started building in 2022 and we'll be opening it in late September of 2023. So almost a four year process start to finish. Yes, I mean, with, with a few small breaks, but the breaks aren't always true breaks because we're always preparing for the inevitable final installation and so forth. I want to I want to mention that Stacy um, and I have worked on every science gallery almost in this building. I have been working with her for a very long time, and there usually is this um, sort of tug and pull between the scientist who wants to say all these factual things that nobody's going to really care about or understand. And Stacy's role, which is to take what I say and help me make it public ready, you know, for the public. So um, she and I have gotten very good at this relationship. Um, it has taken a while for us to develop this relationship. 
Um, and the power of that relationship is that she knows when I need to take things down a notch and I can tell her when I think she needs to lift them up a notch. And it's a really like give and take relationship. So crafting the stories and the narrative that is going to be at the level that we need to be able to effectively tell it to the public and not in a scientific research paper um, takes a lot of effort and energy and trust. And um, I just think that that's an amazing uh, byproduct of, of that relationship. I think you two are a really great example of that because Stacey, you're very good at communicating things in a way that people will understand, but maintains the integrity of, of that information. And Brenda, you're so good because you're, you're already there. You walk into situations saying, I want everyone in this room to understand what I'm talking about, not to understand that I'm smart, which is really critical, especially <laughs> in a museum where people walk in saying, assuming I'm going to learn facts. So we don't need to establish, hi, we're all very, very smart. Now that you know that, Take a take a back seat. Right, right. We just like we want everyone to come along with us in this story. And the other thing that you mentioned is that you've worked on almost every science exhibit mm -hmm. in the building. You don't just work on invertebrate paleontology. You're not just sitting. You're not like Aquaman sitting there being like, "I hope it happens near water this time." Yeah, <laughs> you guys, you guys need help. Like, no, it's okay. It's a mountain this time. You're called upon to add expertise in a variety of ways. Yeah, so I, I mean, I have like a specialty. I'm a deep time paleontologist. I think about things on the order of hundreds of millions of years generally, but our museum is set up in that we have common threads and themes throughout all of our science galleries. Um, and those are easy things for us to keep track of and to connect and make those connections. And, you know, I think, Cody, you know me well enough to know that if it has anything to do with life on Earth or the Earth or the solar system, I'm generally pretty happy to talk about it. And also, I like to expand my knowledge and learn new things. I mean, when we put the dinosaur gallery and I really had to learn a lot about the Jurassic of the of the American West. And um, but that's part of, you know, wanting to be learning new things and experiencing. I mean, Stacy's breadth is even greater than mine. I mean, she's got to also do all of the history side and everything like that. I can just stay in the science realm. But that's part of what's exciting about our jobs is that we're given these tasks in these new areas that we have to explore and, and then be able to translate to the public. And and it really is not just about the words that we're saying. It's also about the voice in which we're saying it and the tone at which we're giving it. So I'm not a huge fan of the scientist tells me all the facts I should know. I'm really more interested in t crafting the stories to bring people along, to have them ask their own questions and inquire about those questions. And maybe when they leave the museum, they want to know more and they go and they learn more, you know, um, I really enjoy more of a stimulating curiosity than rather than just hammering facts. That's not really, I feel like, our place. And I would add that we also do this with design as well. So that's one factor that maybe our voices aren't representing. But in terms of we can create so much of an experience with choices about lighting and how you navigate through space and what kind of message we send through the graphic design choices that we make. And in this gallery, we chose to work with a lot of local artists to highlight. Mm -hmm. uh, we have woodwork and we have bronze sculptures and we have at least two different um, drawn artist work uh, that really do a beautiful job of enhancing and bringing this 450 million year old environment to life in, in very tangible ways. Um, so while we 
do work together to bring together the facts and the story, uh, the design element also strongly affects the kind of experience that a guest has as they're navigating through. And speaking about design, how challenging is that to go through multiple design iterations? Because you show it to someone and they, they may fall in love with the concept. And for whatever reason, that changes throughout the process. Stacy, you said you have very big ears. Uh, this is an audio medium, so you can't see, but Stacy has very normal size ears. <laughs> but uh, metaphorically, you have very large ears, so you're taking in this feedback. But how challenging is that to move people along the process and, and take that feedback, use some of it, set other parts of it aside? So I love imagining possibilities. And one thing that we've committed to for our internally developed projects is that we imagine multiple possible futures. Um, so we might think about what if we really focused this story on telling the story to children versus what if we focused on this as a nature center versus a recreation of an environment versus, and so it's very fun to be able to imagine, all right, the look and feel of this would be very different based on who our primary audience is, based on the kinds of objects we might include um, and how much we want to engage with our physical environment. So it is a challenge because we, one, push ourselves to imagine as broadly as possible, but then also we hear a lot of different voices back and you won't be surprised to know that they're often uh, diverse in terms of what they favor. And she's being very kind we, about it right now. <laughs> she is we, very diplomatic. It's but, critical for her role. But we find ways of working together. I don't think we ever approach it. Well, there's one track and you can buy into this track or you have to commit to this track. Every time we begin a process, we know that we're going to imagine a multitude of possibilities and then lift up the strongest and knit it together into a common story. And I feel as if hopefully we've been successful in establishing that. I feel as if there's a very clear and distinct mood, tone and tenor to each of our galleries while keeping them broadly accessible to our guests. Talking about the narrative, you don't write this word doc and then cut out parts of that and taste it onto text panels. The The narrative, is the narrative longer than what you're seeing on the, the text panels or is it a one for one? Certainly the narrative that supports what visitors are seeing is way longer. And we do need to um, provide our staff, our educators and all of that with the pieces to help with the programmatic aspect of the exhibit because the exhibit itself is designed and then there's programs that go associated with that. And so there's a lot of background information, a lot of science, a lot of research, a lot of history that goes into that, that our staff and colleagues are familiar with. But it is at one point you get down to a document that has the text on it that you will write, that you give to the graphic designers, whoever they are, and in-house or out-of-house to put on text panels. But all of that has been crafted over years, like word-by-word word crafting. So it's intense. How is the design challenge of the space itself? Because people will see it when they visit, but you are moving down a ramp and then you make a hairpin turn down another ramp. So it's various elevations. Um, the ceiling height varies widely in this space. And it's because it is a historic building. It's a National Historic Landmark. So there are elements of the building 
that we can't change, we just work around and work within. What were some of those challenges in this particular space? I want to start out by saying that where Ancient Worlds is, is where it needed to be. And our building actually really was, in, in this particular case, along with some other galleries, the perfect place for it. And that's because we are going down a ramp. And in fact, the seafloor at that time in North America was described as a ramp. And so you're starting at the top of the ramp in the gallery on the Ordovician side, and you're near the shoreline. And then as you go down into the ramp with the low ceiling height, it makes you feel like you're actually scuba diving into an ancient ocean. And so in that sense, that infrastructure that we already had in place was perfect for uh, this part of our gallery. I think we've chosen to not think of it as a challenge and just what are the opportunities. There's so much magic to working in this building and you know, it does come with uh, a lot of leveling feet and uh, yes, a lot of details that we need to attend to to make it work. Um, but it also provides this amazing opportunity of thinking about physical environment in very creative ways that if we just had a generic white box structure wouldn't be as inspiring. We really are able to draw inspiration from the building and yeah. that's that leaves me feeling really fortunate in my job. I've worked with both of you for, for so long that I take for granted the fact that you're both women in fields that are not heavily women-driven often. And so this is something that I have to remind myself that this is very unique and we're very fortunate to, to have both of you in the organization and in such prominent roles. So how do you design an exhibit that more or less says, hey girls, there is an entire world out there that is open to you. We're fortunate to have some museum colleagues who have invested time in researching design principles ahead of us. So uh, Exploratorium and Science Museum of Minnesota colleagues, thank you. Uh, they did a lot of work in advance to identify elements that you can incorporate into design that really do a lot toward inviting girls into the physical experience of engaging with the gallery while lifting up all guests' interest. So they aren't things that are for girls only. They engage everyone. Uh, the goal that they set out for was to better engage girls in physical interactives, but uh, they learned that it benefits all. And there's a set of principles that help inform how we might go about doing that. And so some of the language needs contextualization to make it all make sense. But for example, things that are homey is is part of the language that is embraced. And that doesn't mean that it needs frilly curtains or something, but it's relatable. It's at a scale that's relatable. It's something that you can get up close to and touch. Having multiple viewpoints on something so many people can participate at a given time and being able to gather around something with a group Including people is an interesting one. That's definitely an element that we've used in other galleries because uh, obviously humans were not coexisting with trilobites 450 million years ago. That wasn't uh, a natural for us in this gallery. But I mentioned before, we really focused on bringing in some handcrafted elements. And so there is artwork that suggests a human hand was in involved and it's not all just pristine slick glass and mounts which are beautiful and are hand done but you can really see handcrafted uh 
sculptures that you can touch and engage with. So yeah, I mean the the power of the fossil record that we have here in Cincinnati and sort of out in the tri-state is that you can go and collect fossils in your backyard. I grew up with dinosaurs and I love dinosaurs, but we're not going to find a dinosaur here and we can discuss that later. But the dinosaur gallery is great because it's majestic and there's a lot of amazing animals and we love to see them. But this particular gallery is special because we can just go into your rock wall, to your local uh, state park, to the local creek and find these fossils. And that makes it accessible. And so we wanted to bring that accessibility as well into the gallery. And we did that in a multiple of ways. And one of the ways we did it was by including people who just love to fossil collect. Families, children, amateurs, uh, professionals, uh, historical figures, that element of bringing people in who are every day just going out and collecting, saying, hey, it's here. I love it. It's fun. I don't have to have a PhD to do this. I just need a uh, a bag, a marker, a baggie, and maybe a hammer, and I can go out and enjoy this ancient ocean, I think is one of the most amazing aspects of our gallery. The name gets at that. Uh, there are ancient worlds literally hiding in plain sight. Everyone I've talked to about this exhibit has mentioned, oh yeah, I've found something that looks like this. I found something like this in my yard, that they've experienced this themselves. And Brenda, what you're telling us is this is unique. This is not right. a, a common factor uh, for people to just be able to go out to the park or to the backyard and to find fossils. Definitely distinctive to our region. And one thing that's been really thrilling for me, again, we developed so much of this during closure uh, and we couldn't be together at that time. And so as we've been rounding the finish on this gallery, uh, we've taken some video in the field. And so I've been able to go out in the field with Brenda and Cameron, our collections manager. And I've learned so much through the gallery that I can pick something up and skipper over to Brenda and excitedly say, I think I just found a 450 million year old squid. And she was like, you did. And then I race home and uh, I'm told that I sound like a eager seven year old. And I do because it's amazing because it, uh, I grew up in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. We do have some fossils from the Carboniferous in the gallery from my home county. So I'm excited about that. But it was very rare and special. Whereas here, part of what's exciting is there's just an abundance. So what's exceptional is rare and special, but the general accessibility of finding relatable fossils that you will be able to come in, things that you find in your yard or in a creek here, you'll be able to come into the gallery and find correlates that will help guide you to understand what it is that you found. That's what's really amazing about this gallery is it's accessible these these mm -hmm. things are accessible you look at a dinosaur you've not seen that and you you've not touched one you've not held one in your hands brenda as you said there's you're not going to go out and find one of these likely so it is exceptional how accessible these things are and how excited you can get because they're fossils that you can hold in your hands how do you then make sure that that accessibility doesn't make them ho-hum that it's like oh there are a dime a dozen you can find them anywhere there yeah how do you still reinforce these are really remarkable specimens that you're finding yeah i think um part of it is sort of the exceptional nature of the fossils that we have um, when people are finding them it looks just like the animals 
you could almost stick them in an aquarium. It looks like they would sprout legs and walk away. So the resource that we have here is is so truly exceptional um, in terms of fossil preservation and the diversity number of animals that that in and of itself is very exciting. And I think that's one of the key points of getting people interested in the science and getting them uh, getting that nugget of fire built in is that this is a Cincinnati specific or region specific phenomenon that is unique to us um, and therefore really, really special. I think Brenda and others have also done a great job of fostering a robust amateur community who mm-hmm. help support one another, learn from, from one another. They organize field trips. And um, there's two organizations, the Dry Dredgers and the Kentucky Paleontological Society, who are in our region, who do a great job of fostering enthusiasm among folks who maybe have a curiosity or a glimmer of interest and um, provide resources to really ladder up and learn more and more and um, understand that world a bit more. And it's just also really fun to imagine what it would have been like to experience it firsthand. What would it have been like if you could slip into that water and swim alongside those organisms? I think that helps because they're so well preserved. You can you can really easily imagine recreating the scene. And I think that also helps uh, not leave it feeling like abstract science, but something that you really want to engage with. Yeah. And, and you know, we've had research in this area for over 170 years um, and but there's still mysteries, and there's still new species and new fossil animals being discovered in this region all the time. I just had one done like a, a month ago. And so we're not done yet. There's so much to explore, so much potential and possibility that even though it feels like we have so many amazing fossils, which we do, and and we have so many um, so much knowledge about it, we still have so many questions. And I'm hoping that the gallery inspires the next generation of geologists and paleontologists to say, I can make a contribution to this because there's still so much to learn. Let me back up for a second um, to educate myself. We're talking about invertebrate fossils. Most people think of fossils as bones. Invertebrates do not have bones as we think of them. So how are they fossilized? What are we what are we seeing? Are these their exoskeletons? Or? Yes. Yeah. So invertebrates have hard parts, most of them. Um, you can think of like a classic uh, lobster or crab or trilobite in our case that has an external shell on the outside. Um, it's exoskeleton that um, protects it. Um, even some invertebrates like worms that we think of typically as a fully soft body have a little hard teeth on the inside. That's terrifying. Oh yeah, that they reverse their proboscis and they have the teeth and then they grab and they pull in um, their prey. Oh, fun stuff. Were tremors real? Yes, we actually have a bobbit worm in the gallery and the bobbit worm is essentially like almost like what the tremors worm was. I'm always like Kevin Bacon should be here to see this. Bobbit worms. If you're listening, Cincinnati, Ohio is calling. Yes, the Skalika. My Philly friend. (laughs) See, there we go. We, We got it. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. We didn't even need six. We didn't even, yeah. <laughs> so there's these jaws that these worms have called, we call the jaw scalicodonts. They're microfossils, so they're small, but they, the animal splays them out as a trap and then waits for something to just like a fish or not a fish in this case because there's no fish there. Other animals to come in and then they just snap them shut like, and pull it down into the ground. It's pretty amazing. Oh my God. Oh, and nature is amazing. Don't overlook uh, trace fossils. Oh, yeah. Well, too. So 
we have a ton of body fossils, so that's all the shells and things that you find, but animals as they move through the substrate and the sediment leave trails and burrows behind of their behavior. Classic example would be like a dinosaur footprint, which is the footprint was there, a dinosaur made it, but you don't have the dinosaur. So it's a, a fossil record of behavior. And we have an amazing record here of behavior. Lots of trilobite trackways, worm burrows, all kinds of things like that. Which you think it, it's a footprint. I, I want to see the full dinosaur. I would, you know, I need to see that to understand something. But people do, and you do paw prints of your of your pets, you do handprints of your children, things like that, that you're learning stuff from that. There's, There's a, lot of, a lot of information within that mm -hmm. um, that you're getting from these trace fossils. As you well. know, it, it, the fossil record and everything we know about the history of life on Earth is just a huge compendium of who, when, and where. And so when we put all the data together, you find a fossil, you know what it is, you know where you found it, and you know when it existed. When you put all that data together globally, that's how scientists start reconstructing all the big events in the history of life, right? Plate tectonic shifts, where animals are living on Earth, how they're evolving, how they go extinct. It really is a function of who, what, when, and where. And trace fossils are, are no different. A dinosaur had to make that footprint, uh, and you can tell a little bit about that animal or that worm burrow as being a record of the existence of some biological activity. Stacey, maybe even you who talked about mass casualty events. This is... <laughs> This is a really dire way to say it. I'm sorry. But, no, mass th extinctions. Yeah, yeah. They, one of the largest mass extinctions in history was during this period, right? Right. So at the end of um, the Ordovician time, just sort of at the cusp of when things are getting really good in uh, that time in Earth's history after a major evolutionary radiation, we had the second largest mass extinction in Earth's history, which 86% of all marine species went extinct. Um, and a lot of the, the favorites that we have here in the Cincinnati and like Isotelus, um, the big trilobite, those guys uh, didn't make it into the Silurian. So we had a lot of um, species loss. Um, and we talk about that in the gallery. So what's interesting about that particular extinction is that no single group completely died out, um, but it did reshuffle like how communities were organized later on in the Silurian. Um, and so you see new things come to rise after mass extinction. Uh, a classic example would be the mammals after the dinosaurs, that kind of a thing. And and we address all of those issues because we lost some of our favorite Cincinnatian dudes in that in that mass extinction event. Do you have a favorite uh, specimen in the gallery? Oh, my God. It changes almost every day. I'm like, oh, that's in my top five. Oh, that's in my top five. Um, We're focusing the lighting right now, too. Yes. So it, there, there's... <laughs> Things that just shine one day and yeah. it's, it's shifting. You know, the, the classic big Isotelus maximus that we have at the front and the big crinoid slab with over 300 crinoids on it are natural choices. But um, for me, I, I kind of like the weird stuff. I'm a little more into the weird stuff. Even though I'm a trilobite paleontologist, I, and so I have this big slab of worm tubes that just is fascinating me right now. It's like all these little tiny worm tubes. Like there's like... A thousand of them on this one slab and just having that together in one place uh, from a fossil preservation perspective and to think about all these little tiny worms building tubes that's sticking out of the seafloor and then their little worm bits sticking out the top just as a garden across the sea I mean just fascinates me so I'm 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 right there right now Stacy how about you <laughs> I didn't know about crinoids before working on this gallery and Brenda alluded I 
I came here from a public garden. I am plant-oriented. And these are often called sea lilies. They are animals, but they did stake themselves to the floor and sort of float up in the water column. And they're very graceful and they have really intricate details. So as you enter the gallery from the dinosaur hall, there is a gorgeous giant slab of a collection of them. But deeper in the gallery, there are some very small detailed pieces of different parts of them that I just find artfully beautiful and fascinating that that managed to be preserved. Yeah. And we, we still have modern representatives of those in the oceans today. So you can enjoy them as a fossil version and then you can enjoy them on YouTube <laughs> if you want to see more about them in the modern oceans. What animals are they most like today? They're echinoderms, so they're related to starfish and sea urchins and so forth. But um, you may have heard of things like feather stars, which are stockless crinoids. We find them in the Caribbean. Um, and then the ones that we have are stocked crinoids, and they're more um, in the deep sea refugia. So you got to take a submersible to go down and see those guys. And their stalk is... It's a column made out of little pill shapes, Mm -hmm. but each one looks like a tiny little sand dollar. And so sometimes you find them aligned in an array on their side and you see the little pill shapes, but sometimes they splinter apart and you find just the, as Brenda alluded to, the tiny little donuts. But if you look at them closely, they look like the tiniest little sand dollars and I'm, I'm charmed by them. (laughs) <laughs> Very charming. My wife put our daughter in a shirt the other day and I said, oh my gosh, it looks like a crinoid. And she goes, they're flowers. And he said, sea flowers. I don't think that's what they were. It looked dead on though. And, oh. it, and my wife well, my wife appreciates museums and this gallery and things like that. So gift shop. We should make that happen in the sure. gift shop. Why not? I mean, why not put crinoids on, on t-shirts for kids? Onesies, you name it. We can do it. Okay. We're on it. Yeah. Is there a favorite aspect or element of the gallery aside from individual specimens? Is there a favorite area that you like or a spot that turned out really wonderfully to you? I love it all, I must say. Um, I'm particularly enamored by um, our mudslide video these days. So we do have a lot of media elements in here that help to reconstruct some of the events and some of the pieces and what the sea life was like on the seafloor. And we have a, a video interactive that we've created that um, showcases how these animals were buried alive by submarine mud flows. And it has our crinoids in there and a little trilobite and he's wandering through. Um, but this hasn't really ever been done before. And so to bring that aspect of the story to life in a visual way um, that is stunning and makes sense has actually been a really uh, important part in, of the gallery, something that I really enjoyed doing. and. I'm not a crinite expert, so this is where this takes a village. I had a very good friend of mine who is a crinite expert be able to to talk us through and figure out what that should look like. So we've had a lot of input from outside scientists to help us reconstruct those things. And that was fun. I think for me, the artistic representations of the animals really bring them to life. They exist in a full community. They are within an environment. They have color in ways that aren't preserved in stone and the contrast of, of seeing an echinoderm preserved as a fossil beautifully and then seeing it uh, either feeling it with my hands in a bronze or seeing it represented by a local artist really helps paint the picture for me and makes the whole 
time period come to life in a in a way that's compelling to me. And I think that's one of the powers of our of our gallery is how much art we've included in it because that is a way to engender connection and a way to engender feeling and emotion and empathy and to to make that connection for people. And and when you see like a a rock that is beautifully preserved but then you can relate to that through art. Um, you know, science and art need to go hand in hand and that is one of the uh, the experiences that we wanted to bring. That's interesting. It sounds silly to say, but kind of what both of you pointed out is you look at them and you see it's just a fossil. It's a single fossil, but they had mates, they had neighbors, they had, they coexisted among so many others and putting them in context just gives you a different perspective. And, um, you know, are you going to walk out and you're going to feel really sad about the fate of trilobites? Maybe, maybe not, but you do have this realization that it was part of a community, that it was a living creature among other living creatures. I think in some ways it's also powerful because, at least for me, I think of it, when I think about time and how it proceeds and how life has proceeded, it's all part of a continuum. We can't have what we have here in our modern plants and animals without having had these guys first. And so it all kind of works together and the lessons that they teach us from the past can help us understand the present and even predict the future a little bit. And so it's all part of a similar story that helps to to feed each other. It's not just some alien world on another planet. This was Cincinnati um, and it helps to tell the story of why we have what we have here now and even how we impact that story, you know, and that biota and, and that, I think that's important. We did let things go along the way because things went extinct, but also the diversification that came after and the record of evolution that we have in our rocks is amazing and fascinating as well. So yes, we did lose species along the way, but new things evolved and emerged and as Brenda said, made life on earth as we know it today possible. So I feel in the end, ultimately much more hopeful than defeated. <laughs> I hope you do too. Despite the mass casualties. Uh, the bronzes, the animations, it's all intentional to present the information in a variety of ways because everyone learns in different ways. And so making it accessible to people on multiple levels and going back to how the gallery is engaging girls in science as well, um, it's not about excluding anyone else or designing it you know, with frills or that it's pink the way that you know, they design women's razors, things like that. But it is being mindful that boys and girls can often learn in different ways and making sure that you're being inclusive of the learning styles presented. And again, yeah, not only inclusive learning styles, but inclusive of people's different walks of life and what they're bringing to the experience when they walk in through our doors. When we come to the museum, learning needs to be fun. It's not like we need to be in school and open textbooks. We have, as an informal education institution, the power to, to teach any way that we want to teach um, and anything that we do want to teach. And so we should explore all avenues um, of touch and sight and sound, which we have um, in the gallery, to help facilitate those different learning styles and experiences and make it something that is fun. Because um, paleontology is fun. It's fun. <laughs> and we had the good fortune of having community members engage with us. So we were able to present our ideas to several Girl Scout troops. We were able to present to the dry dredgers and the Kentucky Paleontological Society. 
also, you know, just museum staff at large here. And so along the way, we were able to get feedback and develop in response to the kind of things that were resonating with people across a broad representation of our community. You mentioned the the exhibit staff here, the, the museum staff. I always like to give them shout outs because people <laughs> look at their work all the time, but don't recognize that they're looking at their work. In the times that I've walked through, aside from the time I spent most of my time in the gallery staring at the ground for numbers one, two, three on blue squares. Did we ever find those, Brenda? Oh, yeah, we've got them. Okay, cool. I, I failed <laughs> you in that. But Dave Might was in there uh, kneeling on the ground, painting a stone wall. That just, he handcrafted. That he handcrafted. From the field. Freehand. I'm like, what are you painting? It looks, it looks like rock, but he sees things that other people don't mm -hmm. see the logistics of hanging things from the ceiling of putting these giant glass cases in and moving them in the lighting. I think if you go into an exhibit, take another look at the lighting that things are lit in a very intentional oh, way. Very, and it does matter. It does. It's really incredible. The technology uh, mounting, the handrails for safety, the there's a it, lot of details. I will tell you the, after working with our exhibits crew for many, many years on many galleries, I have learned one lesson above all, and I've learned many lessons, and one is that these people are the best problem solvers I have ever met, without a doubt. Uh, there is nothing that they can't make, fabricate, figure out, reconfigure, and they have spent the last months just essentially making my dreams come true. I've had this vision, we've worked hard to make it, and they are making it happen for us, for me, for you, Stacey, for all of us. And they are guests. And our guests. The things that they can do is phenomenal. These are artists, these are craftsmen, these are professionals, they are amazing. And I, I just have had nothing but amazing experiences with them. We know you've already spoken with Erica and she talked about her joy in welding and <sighs> there's evidence of that. And you'll never see it because it's beautifully artfully designed to to support and lift up the specimen without you ever paying attention to her beautiful work on the backside. But we know how much time and investment she put into it. We need to do this. We need to create a video and, and have like a little pop up and say, see this angle here? This this is welded by Erica. Um, but it's it's true. There's I'd watch that. I would watch <laughs> audio too. Yeah, I'd totally that. The, yeah. the number of times I've been down there in, in seeing someone doing something one day and completely different the other day yeah. and how often it seems like something was in progress and someone got pulled off of that to go solve another issue and someone else walks by and they just pick up the paint and they just carry on for the other person. It's like, it's so seamless in the way that everyone pulls together and, and works on thing. I know there's a lot of work. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of back and forth that goes through in a lot of different iterations, but it is, I mean, if you want to see how a team works and if you want to see yeah. what teamwork looks like on such a massive scale, watch one of these exhibits come together um, because the layers of, of work and responsibility and everything that goes into it are, are so vast. And it's, I can speak to our team, is that everybody just has a positive, optimistic attitude, even when we do face challenges, which are always going to be. And that just goes such a long way. I mean, Dave went out and he molded the actual outcrop with silicone. And I went out with him and I'm like, this is never going to work. And he's like, of course it's going to work. I'm like, how is it ever going to work? I just can't see. And he made it work. He was right. And it was amazing. And now we have an actual casted outcrop in the gallery, which is stunning. 
but how much work that took to make that happen and ingenuity and innovation, yeah, it just blows my mind. I mean, and he just thinks about these things like that all the time. It's also a really complex integration. So while our team has been taking point on building mounts and models and uh, finding appropriate ways to support safe hanging of models and and display of objects, we also had external groups who were helping develop media. We had internal help from Cody, your team, and Mitch, who's recording us today in terms of um, capturing video. We worked with external fabricators who were shipping furniture and glassware and lots of detailed pieces to us. We had all these artists we worked with. It takes many hands. Mm-hmm. So before we wrap up, what's what's next for each of you? Vacation. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> your next black belt. Okay, my next black belt, yes. Um, so because projects don't ever stop, and just because we have a physical, beautiful physical representation of, of what we want to talk about, now we need to support that, right? So a gallery now exists. How do we support the messages and the stories we want to tell? So I'll be writing a book, um, a, a fossil field guide for families and kids, that will talk about the Cincinnatian, maybe put some primers in there about the gallery as well. So that book project is next. And then of course, there's the development of educational programming that our staff will do with visitors to flush out some of the stories that we feel are important to flush out and give more information about. So all of that um, is still going to be continuing on um, behind the scenes. Yeah. And then many more projects to come. (laughs) Right. So we, uh, as you mentioned, we we were closed for a bit, and so we're repopulating galleries, and I have a number of upcoming exhibit projects that I'm excited to be working on with different core teams, and they're in various stages of development, and as Brenda alluded to, some are on the history side, some are in the Children's Museum, some are on the natural history side, so there's, there's a diverse menu of things coming up, and uh, we hope our guests come and see them. I've and enjoy I, them. I have made it my mission to get a fossil in every single one of those galleries. How, how's that going so far? Not too bad. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the history side's a challenge, but I'm going to figure it out. Yeah, they're they're cobblestones in the public landing. I'm sure some of those would naturally have fossils. They might have. They might. I yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll We're just fortunate. Tell them they're under. They're on the bottom. <laughs> We're fortunate to have a curatorial team that is looking to make connections. So. Yeah. Uh, for example, we were reflecting on fossils and I said, you know, we, we keep talking about the scientific view, but scientists weren't the first people, like trained scientists weren't the first people who encountered these fossils. And we went and talked to our archaeologists and they said, oh yeah, we have horn coral pipes that we have evidence of them being used as tools from quite some time ago and so we were able to integrate that story so we have a native people story in this gallery because we work so closely together and we integrate our story so when we're developing history gallery always looking for stem tie-ins uh and when we're developing on the natural history side we're always wondering is there a human story what's the history here as well so we're always looking for integrations that's so cool well dr brenda honda stacy curtis thank you both for joining us it's really appreciate fun. it it has been fun thanks for the opportunity of course thank you for listening to meanwhile at the museum remember if you liked what you heard please rate and subscribe but more importantly come see for yourself especially our newest gallery ancient worlds hiding in plain sight 
Visit cincymuseum.org to see the latest reasons to visit. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to tell us how much you love the show, send us an email at meanwhile at cincymuseum.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.